that little sheet, you can get it back out. You probably don't, though, and that's okay. That little map that I gave out. You know, I'm not going to go back over it where you need to look at it necessarily, but I mentioned it last week. I'm going to mention it again this week, and we'll probably see it one more time next week because what we do, where we're at in Revelation 16 is like kind of a pause where we've, I've paused. It's not a pause in the story, but I've paused and started to kind of look at this whole grand picture of the war of Armageddon and so we've been talking about that for two weeks. We'll talk about it today and maybe next week, and then we'll finally move on. But so much of the Bible centers around it that that's why I'm taking the time. It helps us understand better, too, what the big picture looks like. Let me read this to you. John Wolford says, The war is said to continue right up to the day of the second coming and involves house-to-house fighting in Jerusalem itself on the day of the Lord's return. And you'll see that today, probably, because I'll I'll go over where he's getting that from. The reference to the battle is probably better translated the war. Thus, it is better to speak of the war of Armageddon rather than the battle of Armageddon. The war will be going on for some time, but the climax will come at Christ's second coming. And he's exactly right. We mentioned that before. This is a campaign it's a, it's it's more than just a single moment in time when we talk about armageddon it is a time period um i was watching fury last night i don't know if y'all have seen it but pretty brutal on the language really gory so i'll just give you a heads up on those things but y'all are not youth so i can tell you all these things but i loved it i mean i thought it was awesome but the thing is the basics of it is is it's a tank battalion and you're following the sto- their story through World War II. And they come out and they have a, wo- a battle in the beginning and they win it. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. And they go back to camp or whatever and they get uh, orders and they go on to the next battle. And they win it. Then they get orders and they go on to the next battle. And you know what's coming. You're just waiting that for the time when they get beat up, you know, or lose. And I won't talk about the movie in case you watch it. But point being that that's what's going on here with Armageddon. It's not a moment. It is a, a campaign of battles that are occurring that will culminate. They'll finish when he comes again. So if you're looking at that sheet again, just, you don't have to. If you don't have it, that's all right. But Fruchtenbaum, and I'm just using him as an outline. I'm not saying he is 100% right. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying I like the way he has it outlined, so I'm using it. But he outlines this campaign as the allies of the Antichrist assemble in the first stage, and then there's the destruction of Babylon. We haven't talked about that, but we will. Um, the fall of Jerusalem, haven't talked about that, but we will. Well, actually, we'll see some of that today. And then the armies of the Antichrist at Basra, we will see that, that today. The national regeneration of Israel, probably see that today. We've already mentioned a lot of these things. The second coming of the Messiah, when he comes. And then the battle where the, when the Messiah marches and leads his people out from Basra to the Valley of Jehoshaphat back into towards Jerusalem. And then the march up the Mount of Olives and into the city. So that's going to be an outline of this campaign. And I think it's a good one. I think it's fair. I'm not saying it's the way it is, but I think it's fair. Um, Zechariah chapter 12. You don't have to turn. I'm going to refresh. And we talked about this last week. Uh, chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on that, God talking, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. What did we call that? When God says, I will pour out a spirit upon a person. 
Yeah, that's what leads to your salvation. That's how you were saved. That's how I'm saved. The only way anybody is saved is because God pour out, pours out his spirit on you. You become aware of him and you plead for mercy. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's exactly what happens. So what he's saying in, in Zechariah 12.10 is he's going to pour out his spirit on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of David, the house of David in Jerusalem, a spirit of grace. And please of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierce, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Talked about it last week. They're going to see Jesus, the one they pierced. God, the one they pierced. They're going to see his hands. They're going to know that he's the one. But they're going to cry out to him first. How are they going to know to cry out to Jesus? They ain't cried out to Jesus in all these 2,000 years. What makes you think they're going to cry out to him then? The same thing made you do it. What made you do it? The Spirit. Yeah, God poured out his Spirit on you. He opened your eyes and you cried out to Jesus. That's the same thing they're going to do. It's going to be no different. And when, he does, when they do cry out to him, they're going to see him. Literally, we're all going to see him. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. As I said, this is salvation. It's just like us. Spirit's poured out. We see Jesus. We cry to him. We cry to him. We see him. And he, and he delivers us. But as we move forward, Matthew 23, you don't have to turn to these. I'm going to get you turned in just a second. Matthew twenty three thirty seven says something pretty interesting. Jesus comes over and he sees Jerusalem. And you know the first part of this. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That's where he weeps over Jerusalem, right? Then he says, for I, verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again unless you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Name being the key word there. He and the name. So when you know my name, you'll see me again. Think about that. He's literally telling them, you will not see me again until you confess, blessed is he. So they have to make that confession before they're going to see him. They have to be able to confess, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Then they're going to see him. That did not happen. That's never happened. There's never been a time that they said to Jesus, blessed, is, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. They never did that. Jerusalem sure didn't anyway. Jerusalem's where they crucified him. And they ain't seen him since. Acts 4.12 says what? Y'all know that one? If y'all don't have that one memorized, you have to memorize that one. And there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. No other name. So they not, it's when they cry out to he who comes in the name of the Lord that he will come. Because Acts tells us there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. So that's the only name they're going to cry. They're not going to cry out Yahweh. They're not going to cry out Jehovah and Jesus show up and them go, oh, how did we miss that? That's not what's going to happen. They're going to they're gonna cry for Jesus. Now, how are they going to, like I said, his spirit. So go to Ezekiel 39, and let's pick back up where we stopped last week. We're actually in Revelation 16, of course, the last couple of verses, but we've been doing this overview of 
of uh, Armageddon, because even though the battle of Armageddon or the campaign or the word Armageddon is only one time used in the whole Bible, and it's only right there in Revelation 16, the story of it is all over the place. And I'm letting the word of God tell the story. I'm not trying to plug in names and dates and all that junk. You can, like I said, you can go online and get as many of them as you want. I'm just, I wouldn't trust that necessarily, but you can do it. I'm just giving you the story. I'm reading a lot, but that's because it's this is the story. I don't have to add a whole lot if you just read it. You can dig deeper if you want, but usually you've got to be careful with prophecy. You dig too deep, and all of a sudden you've got an eagle that represents the United States. You know, it's not there. Okay? Verse 1 30 of 39, we, we already did this. Just to skim through here, and we'll dive in in a second. Verse 1 says... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. We talked about this that last week. You can go listen to the podcast if you need to. It says, I will turn you about and drive you forward. I will bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. I will lead you against the mountains of Israel. God's sovereignty, he's causing all this to happen. Then I will strike your bow from your hand, strike your arrows. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You'll see that literally happen in Revelation 19 when we get there at his second coming. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. I'll send fire on Magog, on the, which is where Gog and his armies are from, and those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord, and my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Another reason we know this is a future, even though it's written in Ezekiel's time, it has got to be future because God's name is still being profaned all over the place, especially in Israel. They have a little slang word for Jesus in Israel, a Hebrew slang word. They won't say Yeshua. They say Yeshu, which is an insulting slang version of his name. It's like saying Davy. I don't like being called Davy. Call me Dave. Call me David. Don't call me Davy. Just bothers me. If anybody's named Davy here or online, I don't mean to insult you. It's a David thing. But anyway, for Jesus is an insult. So, but but there's going to come a time when Israel will not profane His name anymore, and the nations, everybody, will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it'll be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I've spoken. Verse eleven. On that day. I'll give Gog a place for burial in Israel, the Valley of the Travelers, east of the sea. In fact, there will be so many bodies there, it will block people from being traveled. And verse 12 says, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying these bodies in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on that day that I show my glory, declares the Lord. Talked about that last week. I believe that's a picture of Jesus, that his glory is going to be revealed in Israel, God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. He will be revealed on that day when his glory is shown. There'll be renown in Israel. Yeah, I guess so. Because his glory is going to appear and save his people, Israel, and whomever else is, believes in him in that day and walk into the Mount of Olives and into the city. Verse 14, they will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. Two times he says cleanse the land. At the end of seven months, they will make their search 
And when they're traveled through the, all the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hemangog. That's what he's named, renaming it. Thus shall they cleanse the land three times. He mentions cleansing the land. So, again, God's attention is on a particular piece of land here. The land is important too. doesn't just say, and they buried the bodies. Burying the bodies was important because they were cleansing the land. It's like cleansing the temple. There was a process by which you cleanse the temple. You didn't just go in there with soap one day, scrub it all clean, and call it cleansed. That's not the way it worked. Matter of fact, go back and study Hanukkah. That's where it came from. Okay. Now, one thing that's real interesting is all of the language that we've been looking at in Revelation has been synonymous with another point in Israel's history. What was it? You remember? Constantly talking about plagues and plagues and plagues. Egypt. Yeah, we've been looking at Egypt and Pharaoh. Here in Ezekiel, there's also similar language to a previous point in Israel's history, but it's it's a different one. It changes to the Philistines. You don't have to go here because you know the story. First, just make a note out by the side here somewhere. First Samuel 17, there's a giant that has threatened the people of Israel. And he's got an army behind him, but he's the giant. I mean, this is the same picture of the beast and the armies of the beast. And they come and they threaten Israel, and Israel doesn't have a chance. They don't have a prayer. They don't feel like they can conquer the giant, much less the army behind them. And they're hiding in fear. Same idea. Same picture of the end time that we're talking about. Same kind of thing that Ezekiel is talking about, talking about the end time. And then comes this line, which is probably one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole entire Bible. Then David goes out by himself. David says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name, there's that word again, of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Exact picture. Exact picture. Of Christ's second coming. These armies are gathered. He's pulled them out. His people are in hiding. They are overwhelmed, overpowered, terrified. And he will appear and he will fight without sword or spear. He will fight. And literally, same language. is going to give great feast of the birds and the beasts and everything because of the dead. Same idea. Look at uh, verse 17. You're still in Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, now let go of David, put your brain back to Ezekiel. God's telling Ezekiel, as for you, Ezekiel, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountain of Israel. There's the location. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, rams of lambs and he goats of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. 
And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord. That's literally fulfilled, like I said, in Revelation 19. What's he talking about with all of this? The animals and the blood and the fat and all this bunch of junk. The sacrificial feast. He's cleansing the land. And he's killing people, yes. He's cleansing the land. Sacrifice required to do that. He's cleansing his people. Saving his people. Sacrifice required to do that. Am I saying he's offering sacrifices here, one for each person? Or, no, I'm not saying anything that complicated. I'm just saying it's the same idea. He's spilling blood as he's saving his people and delivering his people. And the animals, too. I mean, that sounds harsh, but, I mean, it's just, this is it. This is a nasty time. That's why this war is so, this is nothing. Just wait a second. You're going to see far worse than that. Look at verse 21. And I will set my glory. Every time I see that, I put the word Jesus in there. And I will set Jesus among the nations. And all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed all the nations, everybody. Not just, this is not talking about Babylon. And my hand that I have laid on them, the house of Israel, the whole house. Ezekiel makes a case about this constantly. The whole house of Israel, the north and the south. They were split in Solomon's time. It's just now becoming a reunited Israel. It was the north and the south right up until the time that they were scattered by Rome. And when they were scattered by Rome, that was it. There's no north and the south. Now, now, there was no Israel at all. Now, they're coming back together as one house. There's only one Israel now. There's not the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. There's just one in our time period right now. And so this is saying that that whole house shall know that I could say Jesus. I, Jesus, am the Lord their God. That's what they don't know. They believe Yahweh was God. They just didn't know who Jesus was. Which means they really didn't know who Yahweh was. No, they thought they did. But now they're going to know who their God really is. That's what it says. They shall know that I put in here again. I, Jesus, I put it there. And the Lord their God from that day forward. So that's a day to come, Ezekiel says. Whenever that day comes, from that day forward. For us, I would still say it's that day forward because they don't know yet. Go to Israel sometime. They don't know yet. Verse 23. And... The nations shall know, not just Israel, the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their sins because they dealt so treacherously, what? With me. You could put crucifixion right there. It, treacherously, viciously, murderously. Israel went into captivity for their sins because they dealt so viciously with me. Remember, he's in captivity, Ezekiel is, in Babylon because of Israel's behavior and because of Israel's rebellion against God, yes. But he's also talking about the future. We've already established that. So you can draw the line both ways. Remember that when verse 23 begins, he's talking about from that day forward. So he's not talking about the time of Babylon. He's saying that the nations, all the nations, not just Babylon, all the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity or exile 
for their sins because they dealt so treacherous with, with me. I would say that's the crucifixion. That I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. He hid his face from them. How did Jesus talk to the Jewish people after about the third or fourth chapter of Matthew? You could say, I don't know where it starts. It's somewhere in there. When you ask how Jesus taught, most people say this right away. Parables. Jesus did teach in parables. Jesus didn't only teach in parables. Jesus taught very plainly to his disciples. He even said he came to them and told them plainly. He explained what they were. But to the general Jewish people, parables. Early on in his ministry, he didn't talk in parables. We talked about this. There's a point where he turned and started talking in parables, and they didn't get it. And I'll be honest with you. I used to teach even and grew up believing that he taught parables in order to help people understand. That is not true. He taught parables in order to hide truth. You can go study this. He was was giving it to those who had ears to hear and hiding it from the rest. And that's exactly what you have here. They dealt so treacherously with me. There's a crucifixion that I hid my face from them. He talked in parables and then he was gone. And he's been gone for 2,000 years, unless you know him. And then he says, and he gave the people of Israel over to the sword. He said, I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and I hid my face from them. Exactly what he did. That's what's been going on in Israel's history. Look what happened. Rome scattered them, and they have been scattered among the nations, and hid God hiding his face from them. Listen, go watch some of these movies about the Holocaust and different things. You'll hear them say this in the movies. I mean, documentaries and movies, whether it's real or reenacted. Same thing. Why did God hide? Why does God hide his face from us? They literally say these words. He's been doing it, but now they are coming back. So look at verse 25. He he said, well, he said in verse 23 that the whole nations are going to know in this day that the reason that God scattered Israel was to judge them for their sins. So everybody's going to become aware of what God's plan was in this day. And then verse 25 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Everybody's going to know that that's what I did. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. That means north and south, all of it as a nation. And I will be jealous for my holy name. Again, I put Jesus there. Acts 4.12. There is no other name, past, present, future, under heaven by which men may be saved. I will be jealous, you could say, for my holy Jesus, Yeshua. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with no one to make them afraid. I, I swear to you, standing here right now, that has not happened. I don't care how bold they may think they are. Uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinians, Arabs, Egyptians, Iranians, Iraq. I mean, they're about as surrounded by enemies as, as possible. There's probably no other nation on the planet so surrounded by enemies and so tiny. The only reason that I think they have any sense of stability besides we know god's sovereign plan here is because they got a big brother across the lake us that's keeping people in check if america didn't have their back they'd be toast already now we know ultimately god has a plan but you know what i'm saying but he's saying 
They're going to dwell securely with no reason to be afraid. That hadn't happened. Verse 27. When I, I, I have brought them back from the peoples or the nations, and I've gathered them from their enemy lands, that's what's happening right now. That's what you have the blessing of living through seeing. You and me and all of us, they are literally coming from all over the earth back to a piece of land. They've been doing it since 1948. He says, and through them, I have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. That hasn't happened yet, but that's going to. That's when you're talking about this judgment on them, the end times, the second coming, all of that centered around them. That's when it's going to happen. Verse 28, then... At that time, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations, all the nations, all the nations. And then I assembled them back into their own land. Now look at this next sentence is huge. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. That obviously hasn't happened because even if you think Ezekiel is talking about Babylon or Persia, or God drawing them back. How do we know he didn't bring everybody back? How do we know? We know for a fact he didn't bring everybody back from the Babylonian exile. We know for 100% certain that he didn't bring everybody back. There's a book in your Bible written about it. Esther. Where did Esther take place? Anybody read Esther in the room? Anybody seen One Night with the King? Help me out, please. Persia, right. After Babylon, Esther is in Persia. And she stays, and there's tons of Jews still in Persia, including Mordecai the Jew by name. And they lived there, and they died there. So that clearly is not fulfillment of this passage because he left some remaining among those nations. But whatever this is he's talking about, they're all coming back. If they're still alive at the time. Right now, that's even hard to imagine that they could all come back. But in this time that we're talking about, the Armageddon time period, remember, there ain't a whole lot of people left on the earth. So to bring the remaining people all back is perfectly perfectly feasible. Verse 29, and I'll not hide my face anymore from them. Look what he says. When I what? Pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. He will not hide his face anymore when he pours out his spirit, just like with you. When that spirit pours out on them, the whole house of Israel, they're going to see the face of Jesus. They're going to know the name of God is Yeshua. They're going to know that, and they're going to cry out. You know it. We don't have to turn there. Romans 11, 25. This is what Paul is talking about when he said, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Same thing. He's hid his face from them for a period of time. Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's exactly what he's talking about happening back in Ezekiel. The exact same thing. The exact same story. All right, let go of Ezekiel for a minute and go to Psalm 
79. And I'm just giving you a picture. All we're doing is we're looking at this same storyline, same map, if you want to look at the map, but the same storyline from different biblical authors in different time periods so we can get the big picture. Okay? While you're going there, listen to this. This is Micah chapter 4. This is the passage that talked about, we looked at last week, where Jerusalem will be that become the highest mountain because the other mountains are coming down in these things. Micah 4.11 says, Many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let Jerusalem be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. That's a freaking awesome verse. I said freaking, I don't care. That's awesome. They, Micah is saying that these guys are coming against Jerusalem saying, oh, we're fixing to smoke Jerusalem. And they don't know the plan of God that sucked them there for destruction. That's what he's saying. So look at Psalm 79. Again, let's just read verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there's no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. There it is again. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities or sins. Let your... Man, that's a straight awesome verse right there. Do not remember against us our former sins. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Literally, again, salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua very frequently, or Yehoshua, one of the two. So, in a sense, you've got help us, O God of our Jesus, you could say, for the glory of your name, Jesus, deliver us and atone for our sins, for your Jesus, your name's sake. Man, that's an awesome verse. You want to talk about grace in the Old Testament. How are people saved in the Old Testament? Well, sacrifices. Nope. Nope. Keeping the law. Nope. Because nobody did. People were saved in the Old Testament. Just like what you just read, by crying out, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. That's grace. Deliver us and atone for our sins. You, do you see what he's asking? He's asking God to pay for his sin. Who would do that? I mean, it's easy for us to read that and go, wow, yeah, that's biblical. You know, or yeah, that was sung a song about that. Hold on a second. Back up a minute and think about what you're saying here. He is asking God to pay for his sin. How would he have known to do that? What would even make him think of that? Except that God was pointing to something. God was telling him something that even he didn't realize. Why should the nations, all the nations, not just one, not just two, this is not only Egypt, not only Babylon, not only the Philistines, why should the nations say, where is their God? 
Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Remember what the guys, remember way back in Revelation, what the martyrs underneath the altar were crying out for? How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Same thing David's asking for way before, verse 11. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve the doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, this is huge, the sheep of your pasture, we give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. This is awesome. What does he mean by enthroned upon the cherubim? I mean, Ezekiel would talk about this. You know, uh, Isaiah would talk about this. But this is before both of those guys. Huh? Ark of the Covenant. He's talking about the cherubim on the ark. And this is the one who sits enthroned above that. That's a huge statement. Except look what else he called him. The shepherd of Israel. Let me just give you a couple of verses. You don't have to turn. You already know them. Matthew ten five, The twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know that, by the way? He sent the twelve out to the lost sheep of Israel and told them, Don't go to the Gentiles. Might mess with your theology. Might need to go read that again. Matthew 15, verse 23. When the Canaanite woman comes, I mentioned this last week, and he doesn't answer her. Maybe it was two weeks ago, but he doesn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged Jesus, saying, send this Canaanite woman away, for she's crying out after us. And he said, I, wasn't, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. John 10, 2, this one I know you know. Jesus says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by his name, and he leads them out. Literally, he's leading them out of the sheepfold. Guess what the name, by the way, sheepfold is in Hebrew? Basra. little twist. You'll see that in a minute. But literally, it's what he's saying. He leads them out of the sheepfold. All right? And he says, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep Follow him, for they know his voice. They know who he is. This is what's going to happen to Israel in the end. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Verse 6. The figure of speech Jesus used with them, uh, they did not understand what he was saying to them. No idea. Verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. Whoa. We read right over that like that's no big deal. He's literally calling himself the one who is enthroned over the cherubim, if you knew the word of God. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, verse 14 says. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they'll listen to my voice, so there'll be one flock and one shepherd. That would be Gentiles. They would come in with the lost sheep of Israel. 
Look back in Psalm, if you're still in Psalm 80, verse 1 again. O shepherd of Israel, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Reveal yourself. Let us see you. We know that's Jesus. Verse 2. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Watch this. Verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face, circle it, square it, star it. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We see your face. We know who you are. Can you? Has anybody seen the face of God? No. Moses asked. No way, bro. You can see my backside. That's a <laughs> that's a poor result to that question. You know, N- no one has ever seen God and lived. No one is able to see God. It says that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. John chapter one says, plain as day, no one has ever seen God. Then he turns around and says, but the only God, the Father's side, has made him known. That's such a crazy verse, John 1, 18. So here again, he says, shine your face that we may be saved. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. You know what hosts is, by the way, when you see that? Huh? Armies. Yeah, it's talking about angel, like we said, God of angel armies. That's where it comes from. When you see God of hosts or Lord of hosts, that's what it means. So he's saying, restore us, God of angel armies. That's what happens at the second coming. Let your face, there it is again, shine that we may be saved, verse 17. But let your hand, watch this passage is awesome. This has become one of my favorites. I've got to memorize it. By the way, if you ever want a, a grace in the Old Testament, it don't get better than these three verses. I stumbled on them a few weeks ago. Verse 17. Let your hand, talking to God, let your hand be on the man at your right hand, the Son of Man. Who's at the right hand of the Father? You know what I'm saying? Let your hand be on the man at your right, the son of man, that's what he called himself, whom you've made strong for yourself, verse 18. Then, when you do, God, when you let your hand be on the man to your right, when you let your hand be on the son of man, then we shall not turn back from you. Look what he's saying. He's saying we won't turn back. It will not be possible. He's talking about eternal security, basically. If you do that, we won't be able to turn back from you. And then he says, give us life, and we will call upon your name. Look what he's saying. You give us life, and then we'll call upon your name. What's going to happen in Zechariah 14? What did we read just a few minutes ago? What's going to get poured out? The Spirit is going to get poured out on him, just like it was poured out on you. That's called giving life. How did Adam How did Adam become alive from a sack of dirt breathed into him? Same word, spirit. Poured his spirit into Adam, and Adam became a living being. Same thing. You and I, all of us, dead in our trespasses and sins. But he pours his spirit on you, and you become alive. And he says, give us life, and we will call upon your name. So when you give us life, we're going to call upon your name. Verse 19, restore us, O Lord Lord God of angel armies. Let your face shine that we may be saved. There it is again. Let your face shine that we may be saved. No salvation in no other name. No other face. Fruchtenbaum says the specific person they're pleading for is the one on God's right hand. Referred to as the Son of Man. This is none other than Jesus the Messiah. Who has been sitting at the right hand of God the Father ever since the ascension from the Mount of Olives after he was rejected by Israel. 
Only by faith in the Son of Man can Israel be regenerated or born again. Same word. Only by calling upon the name of the Lord can Israel be saved spiritually. Only by the return of the Son of Man physically can Israel be saved physically. It's an interesting thought. Let me take you one more place. Go to Isaiah chapter 34. And I'm not digging real deep because I don't think we have to. I mean, you feel like you're following this storyline pretty decent, just the way it's written out here. And we've looked at multiple different authors in Old Testament and New Testament. It's not like we're sitting in one little location trying to... It's not like we're sitting on Revelation chapter 20 talking about the thousand years trying to convince everybody. We're all over the Bible here, and the thread is the same everywhere. Okay, look at Isaiah 34. More of the same story. Isaiah, a different author. Verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear... And all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged at all the nations. Who does that leave out? And nobody. Okay? This is not, again, talking about Isaiah's time period. This is not talking about the first century. This is not talking about Rome. This is not talking about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. This is a time where God is going to deal with the global world. I'd say that's pretty obvious from that first sentence and a half. Okay? And it says, And furious against all their hosts, he has devoted them to destruction. He's given them over for slaughter. Verse 3, their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise and the mountains shall flow with their blood. This is what we just read, right? In, back in Revelation, where the blood would flow so deep and the bodies would be left for day. It would take months, seven months to clean the bodies up. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. We talked about that in the past. All their hosts shall fall, all as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword is drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Where is Edom? Modern day. They're all over the news right now. Probably the most talked about nation on earth at the moment. Jordan. Modern day Jordan is Edom. Also, Edom is where Basra is slash Petra. All right. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, now it descends upon, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted for destruction. Remember, if you're looking at your map there, the beast and his armies now potentially have surrounded Jerusalem, and, or not Jerusalem, have surrounded Israel and the people in Basra, who some say will be in Petra. I don't know if they'll be in Petra or not, but they'll be in Basra somewhere in exile and hiding and now you surround them and this is where the sword of the lord descends if you were don't turn but if you to go look at revelation 19 you'll see that when jesus comes he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and if he's returning to the same place to defend his people as i believe he is then this is in line for the lord or excuse me it says uh, the lord has a sword it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in what? Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now, 
you could just say that Isaiah is talking about literal Edom back in his time, except that this whole thing began with the global earth, right? The whole world is what he was talking about in the beginning. For the, the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. This is exactly what we read in Ezekiel. When these armies are massacred and all of the animals with it. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soul's soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. There is a day. He's talking about a time period, a day that he's going to act on behalf of Zion, on his people, on his hill, on his land, on his holy place. Go to Isaiah 63. Flip over a few. Isaiah 63, verse 1, he carries on. Who is this who comes from where? Edom, in crimson garments from Basra. So now we have a character coming from Basra, coming from Edom, coming to, I will tell you, Jerusalem. And he's covered in crimson. He who is splendid in his apparel. Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, responds this person, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Who are we talking about? Jesus. This is the second coming has arrived. Now he is coming from Basra, in a sense, covered in blood. When you see Revelation 19, you will see he comes robed in blood. All right, watch this. It goes on, verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like... His who treads the winepress, because I've treaded the winepress alone. Remember, we talked about the winepress back in chapter 14, 15, somewhere in their revelation. And from the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. That's exactly what he was talking about before. I looked, but there was none to help. I was appalled, but there was none to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. In a sense, the father puts his hand on the one to his right. Go. Son of man, go. And he fights alone. But not, not, you know, we look at this and we go, well, he's just doing it by himself. Well, that didn't make any sense. Of course it makes sense. The only one worthy for this battle. It's just like David fought alone. It's the same picture, okay? And then he says, verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Go to Micah chapter 2. Am I saying that Jesus literally is stomping on the earth with a robe and blood on him? Not necessarily. I'm just, it, the picture is of the violence and the bloodshed. There will be bloodshed, no doubt. Maybe it is literally that's what it is. I don't know. As you go there, let me just read you Habakkuk 3. says, God came from Timon. The Holy One came from Mount Paran. Well, Mount Paran is part of the Seir mountain range, which is in Basra. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Since when do you think of God coming from Basra or Edom? You always think of God coming from Israel or from heaven. So what is God, why would the Bible have that in there? Well, there's a reason why, because that's the way it's going to happen. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. 
I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in what? Yeah, mine says Basra. Some say a fold. Same thing because Basra, as I said, means sheepfold. So God says, I will regather my people. I will gather them like a sheep in a sheepfold. Or you could say in Basra. Literally. And he says, like a flock in his pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Now here comes the shepherd of Israel. He, the shepherd of Israel, he who opens the breach or opens the gate, same thing, goes up before them. That's the same thing Jesus was talking about when he said he was the shepherd of the good shepherd. He who goes in by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep and he will lead them out. This is what he's talking about. He who opens the breach goes up before them or opens the gate. He goes out in front of them and they break through and they pass the gate going out by it. Their kings, their king, excuse me, passes on before them. Their shepherd is also called a king. We know they're talking about a shepherd because he's talking about sheep. Obviously, if somebody leads sheep, that's a shepherd. And now he's calling them a king. Their king passes on before them, the Lord, Yahweh, at their head. All capital Lord, which means Yahweh. So the shepherd is the king. The shepherd king is Yahweh. And yet we also know the shepherd king Yahweh is Jesus at his second coming. Um, Go to one more. Well, might get two more. Go to Joel chapter 3. One cool thing in the middle while you're going there, Revelation, you've already read this, so you don't have to turn back to it. But back in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, right in the middle of it, you had this one key. Y'all remember, it was in parentheses, in red in my Bible, probably y'all's too. And it said, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Rutenbaum says, A message of comfort and hope to the believers living at this point in the Great Tribulation. They're encouraged to continue in the faith, for when they see the gathering of the armies together, then they can know that the second coming is just around the corner. A message of comfort is given at this point to all believers so as to give them hope. That's a cool little thing the Bible sticks in there. Joel chapter 3. These, these, two ver- these two passages here are awesome. God is literally mocking these armies. Chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. I like this. Let all the men of war draw near. Go ahead. Let them come up. Come on, big boy. That's what he said. Modern day translation. Go ahead. Get your suit on. Get your hat on. Come on. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords. Yep. Go get all your weapons together and your pruning hooks into spears. Yep. That's right. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. I love that. Talk your smack. That's literally what it means. Modern day language. When a weak says, I'm a warrior, that's called trash talk. Okay? Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. He said, Yeah, come on. Bring them all up. All of you, come on. Come on up. It ain't going to be a war, it's going to be a judgment. It's kind of like somebody deciding they're going to rebel against a government who's sitting, who the court doors are waiting on them. And they walk in and they're standing in front of the judge all of a sudden like, uh, what just happened? Go one more. Go over to Psalm chapter 2. And we will stop here. Psalm chapter 2. And this one's really cool. 
Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Everybody's got all this anger and this hatred and this viciousness, and they're making all these plots against Israel in absolute vain. Modern day, why in the world is Iran wasting their time trying to wipe Israel off the map? They're so angry. They're so vicious. Why is ISIS so viciously hateful and wasting their time trying to wipe Israel off the map? Same idea. That's what he's saying. Verse 2. The kings of the earth. So note, the kings of the whole earth. So this is a future time. This is, he's not, this, the author here is not talking about his time period alone. Because it's in the kings of the whole earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, and against his anointed. That's a pretty awesome little phrase. You know what anointed is? Anointed one in Hebrew. I know. I know this one knows. Messiah. Messiah. Molly's fist pumping. Messiah. So literally, literally you could look at it in that language against Yahweh and against his Messiah. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. laughs. I didn't put that laugh on cue. That's just funny to me, man. God is like literally, it's literally just mockery. mockery. I mean, God's just laughing at them. The Lord holds them in derision. What that means is he's confusing them to death. He's keeping them in denial. He's keeping them. Stupid, Dave translation. He's calling them together to war. He's keeping them. They don't even, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is the king in Zion on his holy hill? It's Jesus. David, at one point, But this is a different picture, a different time, a different moment. Language of a Messiah and all the peoples of the earth. Fruchtenbaum says, God is portrayed as sitting in the heavens and laughing. Because he will soon have these nations in confusion. It is God who will set his king, his own king, upon Zion. And Satan and the beast will not be able to prevent it. Although the nations will assemble to carry out the program of the counterfeit trinity, they will actually accomplish the purpose of the trinity of God. I think that's pretty awesome. All right. We are up to the point, if you're following the thing, we're up to the point basically where he is going to lead them out and come back across the Mount of Olives. So we'll pick that part of the story up next week, and then we're going to move on into the next part of Revelation. Cool? Everybody still good? I ain't toasting anybody. All right. Lord, you are amazing. Your word is amazing. And I love it. I get so excited about it. Just so cool to see you move and talk and speak. And oh, you know what the most awesome thing to me, Lord, is we just flipping pages. We're literally just turning pages. But these are thousands, literally thousands of years apart. And we can look at Psalm, and we can look at Joel, and Micah, and Isaiah, and Zechariah. We can look at Ezekiel. We can look at Revelation, Matthew, John. Lord, people separated by thousands of years. 
And yet, they tell the same story, the same promise, the same threat, Lord, the same uh, miracles, the same truth. And that is, Lord, that you will reign on this earth. And I pray, God, that that day comes soon. Not that I'm looking forward to all of the horrors described in Revelation, but I know that they're coming. And I know the sooner they come, the sooner your kingdom comes. And I pray for it, Lord. I pray, God, for those that don't know you today, if they're here. Or, Lord, if there are people that we know in our lives that don't know you, God, please give us the boldness. Give us the words to share the truth with them that you are who you say you are. That your word is absolute truth without question, verified across thousands of years. Lord, give us the ability to to speak into their heart. And I pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit on those people that we know, that we love, that we care about, that are lost. It doesn't matter how long we yell, scream, shout. It doesn't matter if we did hit them with the book. Lord, the only way they're going to hear and see is if you pour out your spirit on them. And I'm asking you, God, please, to pour out your spirit on those. And I pray if anybody here today that doesn't know you, that you'd pour your spirit on them. Their eyes would be open. God, they would cry out to you, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And I know, Lord, you would save them. And I know that we never turn from you again because you have written your word on our heart. I love you. You're awesome. Um, look forward to an awesome week. And I ask it for your glory as we glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.